Hello, listeners. Welcome back. You are now listening to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. It is my hope that this past week, we found ways to help and influence those around us. I have a friend who really likes tofu, so she cooks with it often. She once scooped tofu out of her soup and accidentally swallowed it while it was still very hot. She had tears running down her face as the hot tofu went down her throat. Just by looking at her, I could tell how painful it was. But after this happening, my friend who loved tofu so much didn't eat tofu for a while because it reminded her of that situation. This type of thing seems to happen to people fairly often. Sometimes it is something that happened to them recently, or maybe something that happened ages ago when they were young. But people can have an aversion to certain foods and avoid it altogether based on a single experience or memory. Or maybe you know someone who doesn't swim because they experienced a scary situation where they were drowning. Or someone who was bitten by a dog and are forever more afraid of them. Or even someone who only takes the stairs rather than the elevator because they were once trapped in it. There are various people that have experienced various situations which cause them to avoid something or to become afraid of it. In the end, these certain things become a weakness for that individual. Certain foods and places can be avoided and it would be a simple matter. But for people who avoid taking elevators, I would think at times it would be very inconvenient for them, especially if they needed to go to a high floor. What would they do then? Still take the stairs? For people who have phobias of elevators, it would be rather difficult for them to have jobs in a high-rise building. For an individual who once experienced drowning and is afraid of swimming, it would turn into an even bigger problem if they experienced the situation again. That is why we should all try to overcome these types of weaknesses. Because of these things, we are often paralyzed and not able to do things we must do. It may be an issue when we have been called as the children of God, but as Christians are not able to fulfill our own duty within the ministry or even become a barrier because of our weaknesses. There's a scene in the Bible about someone who had a weakness, and as we continue to share and speak about this person, I hope that we can all find ways to overcome our own weaknesses. We'll come back to share more after our first song.
Because of Peter's peculiar personality, it gives me a sense of closeness to him. He caused a lot of accidents, heard many compliments and rebukes, walked on water, but also drowned in water. Sometimes reading about Peter reminds me of myself. There came a day when Peter had to face his weakness and his life was at risk. This was the very day that Jesus was captured. As you may be familiar with it, Jesus held a Last Supper, a Passover meal with his disciples the night he was captured. They sang a hymn together and went to the Mount of Olives. During this time, Jesus told them that he would be captured and that all the disciples would scatter. These are the words in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The disciples were probably very surprised by this. As none of the other disciples were able to say anything, Peter comes forth and says this in verse 33. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. The same verse in Luke 22 verse 33 is expressed like this. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus tells Peter before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. I wonder how upset Peter must have felt that Jesus did not acknowledge his heart and intent. But it says in Mark chapter 14 verse 31, But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter says this meaning to prove his loyalty to Christ. But what happens that day? As we all know, just as Jesus said, Peter denies him three times. Even after Peter spoke emphatically and proclaimed twice that he would not deny Jesus, he eventually did. It tells us in Luke chapter 23 verse 54 that as Jesus was being captured and carried away, Peter was following him at a distance. As he assured Jesus twice he would not deny him, he couldn't completely run away, but at the same time he couldn't follow him closely because he would be in danger. He kept his distance from Jesus. He stayed just far enough so that he could run away and just far enough that he could have run towards Jesus and fought with him if Jesus were to have shown miraculous powers and disciplined his captors. This is what happened at the house of the high priest. Each of the four Gospels records what happened there. Except for the book of Matthew, it says that Peter had a fire kindled at the high priest's house. And to the people around him that he knew, he denies Christ three times. I want us to imagine the scene. Peter was probably sitting at a far distance near a fire watching everything that was happening to Jesus. As soon as Peter denied Christ for the third time, the rooster crowed. It explains this scene in the passage of Luke chapter 22, verses 60 through 62. It reads, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The Bible tells us that when Peter denies Christ for the third time, the rooster crows, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. As Peter denies Jesus, through the light of the kindling fire, he and Jesus saw each other, and he went out and wept bitterly. 
During this moment, what image of Jesus do you think Peter would remember? Peter probably felt distraught to see the eyes of Jesus as he denied him when a servant girl approached him after he loudly proclaimed earlier to Jesus that he would walk with him even unto death. What do you think was going through Peter's mind? If I was Peter, it would probably remind me of Jesus' eyes. The place where the fire was lit was a place where Peter denied Jesus. There must be more than this All breath of God come breathe within
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Judges on Your Side, Part 2, based on 1 John chapter 2, verse 1-11. through 11. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Mark Martin. The word atonement, at-one-ment. When you look at the word atonement, you can break it up into those three words, at-one-ment. See, we have been separated from God by our sin, by our sins of deed, the sins that we have committed, and just by the sin of being born into this fallen world. We are born sinners. In Psalm 51, David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't mean that he had an illegitimate birth or immorality was involved. It wasn't in his, in his birth. He's saying, I was conceived in, in this world in sin because I am a descendant of Adam and Eve and they cast their vote for sin. And so I'm related to Adam and Eve. And I have to get out of the Adam's family and I have to be pulled into a new family. That's why, see, Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus said if the firstborn will die. Everyone who's been born the first time in this world, you'll die. You must be born again. You have to get out of this family you were in that's under the curse and under judgment and under the wrath of God and you come into God's new family in Christ and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be given right standing before God. You'll be justified with Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness placed to your account. Is that righteousness in your account? Have you given your life to Christ? Tonight, I want to give you that opportunity as we bow our heads and close our eyes right now to give your life to Jesus. You've heard the good news of the gospel just now. And before we go on any further tonight, I want you to be able to respond because I don't think God brought you here by an accident. God brought you here because he wanted you to know he loves you. And you don't have to feel guilty anymore. You don't have to walk around with that dark cloud over your head of guilt, that burden on your back of guilt that you just can't unload. You can give it to the Lord, he'll take it away from you if you will come to Jesus, but you have to have the blood applied to your life. It's not enough that you say, well, I see the blood. It's not enough, well, I've heard about the blood. It's not enough for you to say, well, I really appreciate this. You have to apply the blood to your life. You have to, by faith, by believing, say, I believe that's for me, I receive that for me, and the Bible says we do that by asking God. The Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and we call on God by praying, and that's what we're gonna do right now. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for the opportunity, just in the middle of things right here, to respond to what your spirit is saying and doing, and Lord, we ask that you will grant now that every person that you've brought here purposefully tonight to hear this good news will respond. Lord, set them free and give them new life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed right now, I want you to have the opportunity to ask the Lord Jesus to come and apply his blood onto your life to set you free and give you a brand new beginning in your life 
and he will take the guilt away. You don't have to live with that guilt. You don't have to face judgment, which is sure. Judgment is coming. It's coming upon this world. There will be a judgment day. The Bible said it is pointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. You will die and stand before God in judgment if you do not receive Jesus. And God will say, why should I let you into my kingdom? And the only answer that will get you in is I have believed in Jesus and I trust in him. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Many people are praying for you right now. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray a simple prayer with me. I want you to pray it between you, me, and the Lord. Don't pray it out loud, but pray it with all your heart. Just between you and me and the Lord, you pray this prayer. I'll pray it phrase by phrase. You pray with me so that uh, you just, you have a guide to pray by. And Jesus will come into your life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you pray that. Thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for the wrong things I have done. I don't want to face your wrath. I know I need you and your saving life. Forgive me and accept me just as I am now. I believe that Jesus died for me and I'm asking that his blood would be put on my life. I believe Jesus rose too from the dead and I'm accepting him right now as my savior and my Lord, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if you've prayed that prayer and you have meant business with God, then Jesus Christ has come into your life. And he has promised to never leave you. You won't face God's judgment. Jesus did that for you. The guilt is rolling off you right now, it's gone. And you can face God and know you have his smile. Now Jesus said that if we will acknowledge him before people, he will acknowledge us before his Father in heaven. But he said if we, if we deny him before people, he'll deny us before his father who is in heaven. And Jesus is saying if you really mean business, if you're for real as a disciple of his now, a follower of his, you won't be ashamed of him. And he's saying I want you to acknowledge me publicly. And so tonight, even though we're in the middle of a service, that's okay, really. It's okay for the Lord to do something like this right now. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I want you to acknowledge Jesus publicly, and this is what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna have you come forward. That would surely be really public. I'm not even gonna ask you to stand up, but wherever you're seated right now, with everybody else praying for you, I want you to do this. I want you to raise your hand, good and high. You prayed that prayer, and you mean business with God, and the blood is now on your life. Raise your hand, good and high. Oh, man, amen. God bless you and you. Keep your hands up, good and high. Let me, God bless you and you and you, and you, and you, and you up here. God bless you, and you, 
And the three of you, God bless you back here. And you, and you, and you, and you. And God bless you over here. God bless you. Keep your hands up just for a second. Keep them up good and high. In a minute, I'm gonna pray for you. Don't be afraid. Just keep your hand up. Nobody's looking at you between, except you, me, and the Lord. Okay, you can put your hands down. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for every person here who's prayed this prayer. What a wonderful thing has happened right now. Lord, we are just thrilled for every person because we know what this means. This is the beginning of a new life, a brand new walk, and a relationship with you that can only get better and more awesome. Now, Lord, I pray that you will please strengthen everybody here, that they will come to to grow in you, and that you'll protect them, Lord, as they leave this place tonight, and that you will help them to put down spiritual roots in a church fellowship where they will grow strong in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Chapter 2, verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? Liar and the truth is not in him. There might be a whole lot of other stuff in them, but the truth isn't there. But whoever keeps his word, hangs on to, holds on to his word in him, in that person keeping the word, the love of God has truly been perfected or completed. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him and ought ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Don't say you're in Jesus if you're not walking like Jesus. And the greatest evidence of Jesus' life is love. That is the greatest evidence of Jesus' life. Some people say, no, no, it's truth, truth. No, it's not. The greatest evidence of the love, the life of Jesus is love. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Truth. No, The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then we go on with other manifestations. Now, you're saying that truth isn't important around here? Oh, please, go listen to the last 20 years of tapes. No, absolutely not. But see, love has to be the motivation. Love is the fruit of God's work. The Lord says, by their fruit shall you know them. You see, the Lord is, in a way, a fruit inspector. And he's saying, if there's really life in them, their branches, there's gonna be some fruit in there, too. You're gonna know what kind of a tree it is by the kind of fruit. Oh, yeah, my little orange tree. I began telling you about my little orange tree probably four years ago. Remember when I was so frustrated with it, I was telling you I'm ready to pull it out of the ground. But I said, I know what it really needs is just time and water and fertilizing. 
You know, it just needs some TLC. Well, I have watered that thing to the tune of many hundreds of dollars, I am sure, over the years. And this year, all the first year, these little things, it fell off. And then another year, I didn't fertilize it right, and all the leaves fell off this time of year. I, put, I thought, well, if a little is good, a whole lot must be better. And, and then this year, though, this little tree that only stands uh, not as tall as I am, not even six feet tall, this little tree had 81 or 82 oranges on it like this size. I'm so proud of it. And every year they've gotten bigger and better and this year they're the sweetest, sweetest things. And I'm thinking, that's my orange tree. <laughs> Whereas before I was saying, what kind of a tree are you? What'd I get? I got, this must have been on sale at the nursery. I don't know why, you know, it's this crazy tree. It's citrus, citrus what, you know. But now, there's just, oh, it, they peel easier than any orange I've ever seen in my life. Just pull apart easy. Hardly any seeds in them. I'm thinking, I can't believe it. I'm so proud of the fruit. I mean, I didn't do it. I, 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 you know, but I'm just. Fruit is important. As we grow in the Lord and he gives us TLC, there will be more and more fruit in our lives if we're really of his planting. If we're not really of his planting, there will be barren branches and the fruit won't be that sweet taste of love. There'll be harshness and meanness of spirit. There will be a lack of joy. There will be a sense of doom and gloom and and, you know, all the opposite things of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, he goes on to say, beloved, verse 7, I am not writing a new commandment to you. This is not unique. It's not like, I mean, come on, you, you've heard this from the very first start. But an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness even right now, he says. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has what? Blinded his eyes. He's blind. And unfortunately, there are people who are blind guides. They are blind, leading the blind, and the greatest fruit, spiritually, I'm speaking, of a spiritually blind guide will be hate. They will hate. The greatest fruit of being in the light is love. Love and understanding. Well, love is the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. In his introduction to his rendering of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the message, 
Eugene Peterson says, listen, I love the way he says this. The two most difficult things to get straight in life are love and God. More often than not, the mess people make of their lives can be traced to failure or stupidity or meanness in one or both of these areas. The basic and biblical Christian conviction is that the two subjects are intricately related. If we want to deal with God the right way, we have to learn to love the right way. If we want to love the right way, we have to deal with God the right way. God and love cannot be separated. You can't say you have God and not have love. And you can't have true Christian agape love and not have God. He, one brings the other. And so John is addressing a problem in the church. He's addressing the issue of people who claim to be Christians but don't live like Christians. They don't walk like Christians. And it's not just love, no, but he does love, 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 love. It's mentioned, what, 12 times here in these verses? I mean, it's mentioned a lot. He's saying the love of God will be an evidence of your life in Christ. That love is patient, that love is kind, that love is long-suffering, that love has faith, that love sees and believes. Now, that doesn't mean that love just lets anything happen. That love will stand for truth and right. That love will guard and guide and protect. You read 2nd and 3rd John and you have the rest of the story. But as he's correcting some of the problems, you know, like problems between brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's saying now, an evidence, if, if you're really walking in the light, you're gonna walk in love with one another. And if you can't do that, <laughs> then somebody's in darkness. Somebody's in darkness. The one who says, I've come to know him, verse four, and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now what are the commandments that he's speaking of? Well, he testifies what they are in 1 John 3, verses uh, 22 and onward. 1 John 3, just turn a page And these are the commandments that John, this is in context what he's talking about. These are the commandments he specifically has in mind. He says, and whatever we asked, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight and now we're not left to wonder what the commandments he's talking about are. He says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and what? Love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him and we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit which he's given to us. The most evidence, the greatest evidence rather of Jesus being in your life will be that he gives you new love. New love You're gonna start loving things you never thought you could love before. And new hates, too. You're gonna start hating things you never hated before. He's gonna give you love for people you never thought you could love before. 
is going to give you grace. Now, you won't, you know, it'll be tested and it'll be, but I think sometimes, you know, well, we just live our lives in the light of the cross and we see the love there and it shines so brightly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much tonight for uh, your words and uh, for your spirit and we desire to be a people, Lord, of, of uh, prayer and a people of love. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit with the uh, many people tonight who have made decisions for Jesus, your son. We rejoice with them and for them, Lord. We pray that they will sense your presence very near to them as they leave this place tonight. In Jesus' name.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. The U.S. Supreme Court has recently legalized same-sex marriage, and laws permitting abortion and marijuana use are being adopted throughout the nation. The basic moral law of the United States is being compromised, which indicates that the values of the majority of our population are changing. In the midst of such a shift, what should we, as today's Christians, hold on to? Even when the Constitution pressures us to accept something totally non-biblical, how should we respond? There are three different approaches. The first approach would be anarchy, 
or denying the authority of the government. This approach, however, is not realistic because there is no society in the world that permits citizens to deny the authority of the government. The other two approaches recognize the authority of the government and are called radical patriotism and biblical obedience. These concepts may sound rigid, but are based on very simple principles. Radical patriotism argues that citizens must always submit to the government. This argument is based on Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, which states, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Disciple Paul, who wrote Romans, wrote this letter while Rome was under Nero's regime. Nero was notorious for the murder of his mother, as well as the persecution of countless Christians. Even then, Disciple Paul advises us to obey those who rule over us. His advice resonates with both Titus chapter 3, verse 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Titus 3.1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And 1 Peter 2.13 and 14 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Followers of radical patriotism therefore believe that citizens must obey the government, even when it's evil. Even if we are forced to take an evil action due to an evil order, radical patriots believe that God will not find us responsible for its consequences. They present cases from the Old Testament where different tribes were employed to judge Israelites as their evidence. Radical patriots claim that obeying the government is the same as obeying God. On the other hand, believers of biblical obedience claim that when the government order is non-biblical, Christians have the right to disobey. According to biblical obedience, God's law is superior to that of humans, and thus an unconditional loyalty to a government could be a form of idolatry. As long as the government exists within the authority of God, we need to obey the government. Yet once the government's stance diverts from that of God, we need to follow God's way. It's not to defy human authority, but to obey God. However, biblical obedience also has a flaw. It does not specify to what extent citizens should disobey the government. Some argue that it's okay to disobey only when the law forces citizens to sin. For example, disobeying a government for simply permitting abortion is wrong because the government does not actually support abortion, but simply allows it. Once the government starts to enforce the abortion, however, that is when citizens have the right to disobey. Others argue against this first viewpoint and claim that citizens can disobey a government when it begins to permit an action against the Bible, even if it does not necessarily enforce it. Those who hold to this standpoint sometimes use violence in order to stop the abortion. However, violence can never be justified even if it's against the doctors 
conducting the abortion or the lawmakers misusing their authority. Instead, education and active political participation would be the better and more biblical way to deal with these unbiblical laws. So what are your thoughts? Which approach would you support? Anarchy? Radical patriotism? Or biblical obedience? Christian minds should always be willing to obey God and the government. When the two begin to collide, however, we must follow God's laws over human law. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. Oh
It is recorded in the four Gospels that Peter denied Christ, but in John 18 it is recorded slightly differently, and it reads in verse 18, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. It is recorded that it wasn't simply a fire, but a charcoal fire. With the original language, the word ensrakia is used, which means charcoal fire. I wonder why Apostle John used this specific word. Peter, who liked to stand up and say things, didn't say much after he denied Jesus. Even after Jesus was resurrected and came to meet the disciples, Peter did not say anything. I'm pretty sure he didn't have the courage to look him in the eyes. Even if he was so happy to see Jesus again, he probably did not have the boldness to go up to him. It is because Jesus knew that Peter denied him three times. And as it was written in Matthew 26, more so because when Peter denied Jesus the third time, he cursed and denied it with an oath. Even after meeting Jesus, Peter's life went back to his old original fisherman self. It says in John 21 verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. These are the very first words of Peter that is recorded in the Bible after he denies Jesus. But what happens to Peter and the disciples as they go fishing? That night they caught nothing. But as the day was breaking, Jesus comes to the disciples and tells them to cast the net on the right side of the boat and catch many fish. After hearing from another disciple that it was the Lord, Peter put on his outer garment and throws himself into the sea. But what was it that was waiting for Peter when he came back to the shore? Apostle Paul expresses this in John chapter 21 verse 9 like this. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. As it was also written in John 18 verse 18, the word encerkia was used. Coming out of the sea onto the land with excitement, he was probably a little surprised to see the charcoal fire. And seeing Jesus next to the charcoal fire probably reminded him of the night he denied him. The image of a charcoal fire probably has become a great barrier for Peter to overcome, and Jesus probably knew how heavy Peter's heart must have been. Jesus does not rebuke and scold Peter, asking him why he denied him or saying that he is disappointed in him. Instead, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asks Peter this question three times and led Peter to confess his love for him. From this point on, a kindled fire no longer reminded Peter of the night he denied Christ, but instead turned into a precious place that reminds him of his confession for Jesus. He no longer needed to feel guilty or shameful about the memories that a lit fire brought to him because Jesus restored him. There was another reason the Apostle Paul uses the words charcoal fire in a different meaning other than what was recorded in the four Gospels. It is explained in Isaiah 6. During the year King Uzziah died, prophet Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne. He sees the glory of the Lord filled upon the land. But when he sees this, he doesn't shout, Wow, how wonderful! Instead, he confesses in chapter 6 verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He realizes that he is a sinner before the Holy Lord.
And an angel comes down to him. But what did he have in his hand? It says in Isaiah 6 verse 6 that he had a burning coal in his hand. As the angel touches Isaiah's mouth, he says this in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. A charcoal fire represents the forgiveness. A charcoal fire represents the forgiveness of sin and purity. We can now understand why Apostle Paul keeps referring to charcoal when he recorded the restoration of Peter. Peter was forgiven of his sins by Jesus before the charcoal fire. As we live, we make numerous mistakes and fall. There are times we lift our heads up towards God because of our sin. There are times where we may be good at everything else, but fall because of a certain sin. And when we face it, even before trying to overcome it, we lose our courage and give up in fear. However, our God does not want us to be defeated. As he went to Peter and restored him with a charcoal fire, Jesus seeks us and wants to restore us as well. He will help us to defeat and overcome sin in our lives. He will lead our lives so that we may overcome our sins and live a life glorifying Him. Do you, our listeners, have a charcoal fire in your life that prevents you from going forth before the Lord? I ask that you take the charcoal fire to the Lord as He will restore you. I hope this next week we will all be able to take our charcoal fires to the Lord and be restored and experience grace by confessing to our Lord. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week and God bless. Amen.